This morning we're going to read together James 1. 1. Uh, <laughs> it's probably the shortest passage that we've done together in my time here. It's more, uh, I'd normally leave the one-verse sermons for Dad, but uh, I, I think it's important for us to, to deal with it carefully together as we begin. But, but take heart, because as is true to my typical style and uh, I guess passion and uh, desire for the Word, at least the way that I tend to preach it, we're going to take next week verses 2 through 18. So we'll, we'll get back into a larger, a larger passage. But for this morning, we're going to be in James chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 1 together as we get into the study of this great book. Before we, before we read God's Word together, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to see truth from your Word, and God help us to be transformed by the truth we find there. So now as we read even just one verse, pray that your Spirit would write its truth upon our heart, that he would minister it to us in a way that uh, it is used to bring about your purposes in our hearts and in our lives. God, do this for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, James 1.1, the uh, greeting of, uh, of James in this letter, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And that is the word of God. And it may seem odd to you to be taking only one verse together, but I think you're going to find that uh, as it is often appropriate and as we should always seek to deeply uh, study the word of God and to, to dive into it with everything that we have, there is a great deal to be learned from this, even this single verse. But as, as we begin, the first thing that you notice about it is the author identifies himself as James. And while it's pretty widely accepted that this is James, the brother of Jesus, it is not universally accepted. I have to tell you that there is no good reason, and you'll just have to take my word for that. I'm going to give you a couple of them. There's no good reason to think that this is any other James than James, the brother of Jesus. There is one other potential James that we find in the scriptures, and it would be John's brother, James. But uh, we, we know from the book of Acts that he was martyred one of, as one of the first martyrs in the early church long before this probably and possibly could have ever been penned. And so he's out right out of the gate. And for that reason, among many others, I think it's best to simply take, as has historically been understood by the church, that this is written by James, as he declares himself to be, the, the servant of God, that is the brother of Jesus Christ, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Additionally, as is in, I, I preach from a large study Bible because of the, the size of the text. It makes it easier for me to read and not to get lost. But as is even present, if, you were, if I was to sit here and read the notes, I'm almost positive that even in the ESV study Bible that I have in front of me that I give so much credit to and weight to that I love so dearly, uh, I think they argue, and, and, and I could be wrong, I haven't really looked, but I'm almost positive that it, among others, and your Bible in front of you may have some note to the extent that uh, James, it is James the the half-brother of Jesus, but that he's not really Jesus' brother, that he's a close kin to Jesus, but that was simply a Hebraism that meant uh, close of kin, that he was his brother, but that really he was probably a cousin to Jesus. Again, there's no good reason to believe that or to think that. There's no reason to question the testimony of the scriptures that uh, he would have been a, a, 
a brother, a half-brother to Jesus, probably would have grown up with him. And I think that that reality, as we're going to see in a few moments, is going to give some substantial weight and understanding to the letter that we have before us as he now writes it to these Christians. This James, the brother of Jesus, who is writing this letter, as we find out in Acts chapter 15 and 21, he is going to emerge as one of the preeminent figures in the Jerusalem church. He is one of the early elders and leaders of the first Christian church in Jerusalem. He is then going to write this letter as one of those leaders in now probably in Palestine and pastoring and leading the church in Palestine. And he is going to be writing the letter predominantly to Jewish Christians. You can see that there. He refers to them. And this is going to be part of our sermon in a few moments. We'll come back to this. But notice that the second half of the verse, it's to the 12 tribes. Okay, so this Jewish language from the Old Testament about the tribes of uh, the children of Israel, these 12 tribes and the dispersion. So he's writing to Jewish Christians in New Testament times and modern day for him uh, that are Christians who were once associated with the church in Jerusalem, more than likely would have been born out of that church and what was taking place at Pentecost, but they've now been dispersed abroad. It's possible that we're not 100% sure. He could be talking about the dispersion that took place among the early Christian church at, at St- after Stephen was martyred. And the Christians were scattered a bit, and some of them found their way into this land of Palestine. And so he's probably writing to these dispersed Christians in God's providence. It, it really is unimportant what exactly, which exact event, literal event he may be referring to that would have caused the dispersion. But there are these dispersed and wandering and struggling Jewish Christians who would have been of extreme poverty. Uh, they would have endured great suffering and probably persecution from their culture. Uh, they would have... Uh, experienced great trial and difficulty of life. They would have been in a land that was not sympathetic to their Jewish heritage or their contemporary Christian faith and belief in Jesus. And so James is writing this letter to them uh, to encourage them in their Christian walk. And so that's really what the letter then is about. It's written by James, the brother of Jesus, who is claiming to be, as we're going to see in a moment, this servant of God. But he is writing to them a book about everyday life. And it's one of the reasons that I wanted us to study this together. As we have been spent over a year, a lot more than a year, studying the life of Jesus, I think there is a great temptation to somehow think that, and, and it's while it's true that there are certain things we can learn from the life of Christ and his ministry and the things that he did, I think there's a certain temptation to think that, we're, that our Christian life is supposed to look just like Jesus's. And friends, we're not Jesus. We are the followers of Jesus, and we are called by Jesus, who lived and ministered in a certain way. We are called by him to do certain things, and they're not always the same. And so I think it's a good question for us to ask this morning, and moving forward from this morning into the next Sundays that will come, as we study this together, what exactly does the Christian life look like? What does it mean to be a faithful Christian in a dark and in a dying world? A faithful Christian, faithful to the claims of Christ and to his word in difficult situations, in trials and tribulations, under intense suffering and persecution, in poverty, in sickness. You see, that's the context into which James is writing. These Jewish Christians that have been dispersed in God's providence, that are experiencing to some degree great difficulty in their life, and part of what 
part and parcel to what he's going to be articulating for them is what their responsibilities and duties as Christians are before God. And so I think it's important for us to ask, what does the Christian life look like? So that this letter, this book then, it's a book about everyday life, but it's a book about ethics. It's a book about putting our faith to work. Uh, It's a book about uh, faith that does something. You you know, I mean, he's going to talk a lot about faith and works. It's a book that's very easy to read. But listen, it's a book that's extremely difficult to hear. It's plain. James is plain spoken enough that all of us in this room can read the letter as we see even in the first verse, the plain spokenness of the man that is writing. And we can read and pretty easily understand exactly what he's saying. The problem is, is that there is no, it's a no holds barred approach. And he's going to step on toes and he's going to rebuke sin and he's going to call for repentance and he's going to plead for obedience. He's going to exalt the commands of Christ and the word of God. And he's going to constrain believers by its cords. And, and friends, that's easy to read, but it is super difficult to listen to. So, so it's easy to read, but it's not a lot of fun to read. But it's, it's extremely important that Christians and as Christians that we commit our lives to reading and understanding books that teach us about how to live as Christians and how to be faithful. And friends, I think it's extremely important. Again, I think it's extremely important for us to study in our day and in our current cultural context. You know why? Because anytime preachers nowadays, and, and those of you, most all of you that are here this morning have been with our church and under my preaching ministry for some time, you know that I'm a grace preacher, a sovereignty of God guy above everything else, and that we are saved by grace and that there's nothing we can do to get in it. It does not sort of, we, we don't owe God anything because if we owed him something, it would not be a free gift, that it is a work God has done in us because of his good pleasure and for his purposes to bring about his own glory. And so for many in our culture who are faithful to preach the gospel of grace, anytime they begin to speak about the duty of Christian living, or Christian obedience, or the commandments of God's word, or the imperatives that are found there, that are binding upon Christians in the way that they live, and call Christians to do certain things and to not do certain things, the charges of legalism begin to be hurled at them, like, you know, flaming torches or cocktails being hurled into an unruly crowd. They begin to, to cry out legalism and shut, and shut those people down. But friends, let me encourage you with a few statistics from the book of James to that end. It is a book that mentions faith 14 times. So faith is extremely important because it's not that long of a book. In this book, among those and where those 14 mentions of faith come from, there are 108 verses of which 59 commands and imperatives come. So that in some incredibly magnificent and yet mysterious and difficult way, there is a relationship that James is trying to articulate for Christians, for God's people, about faith and works. A relationship between faith and works. So that faith is mentioned 14 times, and that's a lot. But when compared to the 59 mentions in the 108 verses of commands to obedience and imperatives that God's people are to give attention to and keep, it seems rather small. And so we don't want to be legalists, and we have to be careful that we never never endorse or espouse or proliferate a 
a legalistic view of the gospel and a legalistic understanding of grace. But friends, we must also, you know, not not be antinomians who say that there is no law. It's just a just a designation, a fancy word, anti being against or not, namas, nomianism being law, that there is no law, so that because of grace, we can just do whatever we want to do. We can live however we want to live. And because God is a God of sovereign free grace, he's going to bring this salvation about in us, and it doesn't really matter. Friends, we have to guard against legalism, and we have to guard against antinomianism. And the way to do that is to study wonderfully written books via the Holy Spirit through men like James that bring about an understanding of the relationship between our faith and works. Where we read and study men that are not to not afraid to claim and to speak plainly about faith in Christ and salvation by grace, but also to speak about the duties of Christians to live faithfully and obediently to the word of God. David Platt, uh, who I, I bought his little commentary on this book, and he's, he's super good. If you, if you don't know who David Platt is, I'd encourage you to Google him and find out. Um, he's a Southern Baptist pastor now. He's a young guy. One thing I like about him, he said this, speaking of those that want to separate faith and works and always want to hurl the term of legalism against those that talk about that and speaking about James' emphasis on this relationship between the two, he says, it is immature, shallow, and to be blunt, damning to try to separate the two. So that it's hard and and it's complicated and we have to be very careful about how we divide the text. But but we must understand that there is an important relationship between faith and work. So for all these reasons, I think the book of James, as it is written to these struggling Christians, where we find ourselves now in the same context to some degree as struggling, wandering Christians, that we read and study a book that is written to encourage their faithful obedience to Jesus. And friends, as we begin that study, that's my encouragement to you, to understand the gospel of grace, free grace, salvation by faith in Christ, but also to understand the commands that God has given and the obedience to his word that we owe him. So, as James then begins talked about who he is. We've talked about what it is that he has to say. He begins his letter and he calls himself, look, James, there is this self-designation, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What James is going to do here is before he is going to move on to tell other people how to live, to encourage our faithful obedience, but before he's going to articulate it for us, he's going to model it. Friends, this is a good methodology I said last week that whoever it is that said, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words is a fool. That's ridiculous. But it is true that sometimes we must live the gospel before anybody will ever hear the gospel. So a a life, a gospel-driven life that gives Proper and adequate testimony to the gospel that we proclaim to believe with our mouth is vitally important because it gives testimony and supports and undergirds the preaching that we, that, that we give, the preaching that we make, the, the articulations of the gospel that we spew out. And so it's important that we lead by example, not just preach good content. And that's what James models for them. He's not just going to begin in verse 2, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Go down to verse 5, if you lack wisdom, ask it of God who gives generously. 
Go down to verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. He's not going to begin to give all of these commands and imperatives about what Christian living should look like without modeling Christian living for them. How does he do that? He does that in three ways. First, he subjects or subordinates himself to God. Look at his language. James, a servant of God. A servant of God. This is the language in the New Testament of a bondservant which is crucially important. One, it is language of servitude. Notice that James is intentionally subjecting himself to the authority of God. He is articulating for them. He is opening the letter and building his argument on the basis that I am asking you ultimately by all of the commands that I'm going to give you and encouragements that I'm going to give you, they all stem from a right understanding of your place before God, that God is your master, That he is your king, he is your prophet, he is your priest. You are to willfully find yourself in subjection to him and to his word and to his law and to his commands. So it's language of servitude. Friends, it's also language of permanence. He's not only saying, yes, I am James and I am a servant of God. This language of bondservant is a permanent servant, a servant for life. Bound not to do what they wanted to do. Bound not to do what they found fit to do and good to do. Bound not to do what benefited them, but bound to do the will of their master. To work for him. To to live a life that benefited him. And to trust in him for their benefit and blessing. This language of a bondservant, it is the language of permanent servitude. And friends, the reason this is so staggering coming out of the mouth of James, who would have been so well known to all of the Jewish Christians that he was writing to, is because because think of what he could have said. He could have said, James, the brother of Jesus. That's pretty uh it's a pretty stout title, isn't it? I'm I'm the brother of Jesus. You better listen up. He could, have, he could have called for them to listen to his commands and heed his word because of his authority on the topic. He could have said, this is James, the one who was with the disciples in the upper room immediately after the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. But he didn't. He could have said, this is James, one of the most important pastors in the church in Palestine. He could have said, this is James, the moderator and leader of the Jerusalem council. He could have said, James one of the leaders and elders of the first Christian church in Jerusalem. He could have said James, the friend and defender of the Apostle Paul, consequently who referred to James as a pillar of the church. Do you see that James was a man of spiritual stature? In God's providence, he was a somebody. And everybody who he was writing to would have known just the somebody that he was. But rather than begin his letter by holding himself before people, what does he do? He calls them to Christian obedience by holding God over those people. And he shows them that the key to Christian faithfulness and obedience is to understand our subordination before God. By showing them that this is James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, moderator of the Jerusalem council, friend and confidant of Paul. All of these things that we just listed. James, who is nothing other than a servant of God. 
Friends, the greatest of us is nothing. It's nothing before God. And friends, the greatest of us would be nothing if it were not for God's blessing and providence. So, so who are we to call people because of us? Friends, what, a, what, a, what an unbelievable statement it is that he claims to be a servant of God Almighty and to model this type of humility to the Christians there. And friends, he's modeling it for us. What, is this the way that you live your life? The servant of another master? Willing to go and do for his benefit and glory? Trusting in him only for blessing as he sees fit? What, what a picture of humility and trust in God. Could you begin a letter to your dearest of friends who know you so well in order to encourage them to certain things by saying, Matt or Katie, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that he does, not only does he subject himself to God, he exalts Jesus as God. He exalts Jesus as God. And this is extremely important. Look, he says, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to these Jewish Christians who had now come to faith in Christ, there would have still been some confusion, I think, in their mind. Because the supreme teaching of the Old Testament and for God's people all through the children of Israel was that the Lord our God is one. The Lord our God is one. And so there would have been some debate and some division over whether or not Jesus was divine. Don't you remember in the Gospel of Mark that we read and studied for so many months together that the thing that cost Jesus his life was his claim to be God. That when Peter makes his public profession, if you will, his proclamation of who Jesus is and understanding his identity, all that Jesus has been trying to communicate to him, what does he say? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are deity. And when Jesus stands before the council, he, has, he feels no compulsion to give an account for any of their charges. He does not defend himself at all. He is silent, as the scriptures say, like a lamb or a sheep before its shearers until they ask him about his identity. And when they ask, are you God? He says, you have said rightly. Do you see the importance of the divinity of Jesus? And as we preach through that, and as I'm going to remind you again this morning, there is nothing more central to the gospel than the divinity and the deity of Jesus. For if he was not God, we are all lost. And James, what does James do? He puts this Jesus, this man, this one who was killed, these claims, this man who, there are all these claims now circulating at this time about his resurrection. Once and for all, he says, first, in humility, he's a servant of God, but he's also a servant of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're the same. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He puts them on a par with one another. He puts them on level with one another. He makes it plain for the Jewish Christians there to see that the beginning of Christian faithfulness and obedience is the understanding that Jesus, your Messiah, is God Almighty in the flesh. Friends, if you understand the deity of Jesus, it changes the way you listen to the things he tells you. Do you see that? And he, he, he begins by holding before these people that Jesus is God. God come to save us. And, and, and it's interesting to think about how substantial the testimony of James would have been to the deity of Jesus. Can you think of a better person whose opinion to trust? One theologian put it like this. He remarked that one of the reasons he believes in the divinity of Jesus Christ 
is because James, who probably slept with him in the bed when he was a little boy, believed that Jesus was divine. Have you ever thought about that? Who would have known more about the quirks of Christ, if I can say that? Who would have known more about his personality if he would have ever had ever sinned? If he would have been had any evil in him? Who would have been able to give greater testimony than the brother that grew up with him? And coincidentally, it's, it's not 100% clear, but if you go with the other teachings of Scripture on, on James, the brother of Jesus, when, when Jesus is alive, it, it seems to insinuate that even, you remember when his family does not believe in him, that that includes his brothers. So that there seem, there's some time in James's life, I think, when he is not a believer in Jesus, when he does not believe the claims of his brother. But in God's providence, he has been brought to believe and to understand that his brother is indeed Jesus. And even having lived with him and as a little boy slept in his bed, he can come up with no reason to deny that reality. Who better to believe than James? And, and, and so I would encourage you, like James, to believe that Jesus is divine. Why? Well, one reason, because James, his brother, thought so. And that is a substantial testimony. And so, very practically this morning, he subjects himself to God. He exalts Jesus as God. And I would ask you this. Do you have this same view of Christ and of your place before him? Because just as much as... The humility of James found him subjected to God because Jesus is God, and at least in his, his mind and understanding, he was also found in humiliation and subjection to Jesus and his word and his commands. Do you see yourself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you feel constrained by his will, saved by his grace, spurred on by his spirit, and bound by his word? Because James did. And isn't it interesting that it's because of this supremely significant and authoritative view of who God is and the person of Jesus Christ, it is because of that that James is willing and able to be obedient. So, so he's going to build up his own view of God and of Christ and his own positional uh, place before them, hold that before the people before he ever begins to tell them what to do. Why? What he's, what he's saying, friends, is if you, don't, if you don't view God like this, there will be little or no obedience to his commands in your life. But if you understand who God is and who Jesus is and find yourself in willful subjection to them, constrained by their word and spurred on by their spirit, then a life of Christian obedience is possible. And in fact, it's likely it will present itself in the way that you live, I think. So he exalts Jesus as God thirdly. There's another thing that he does. He embraces the Old Testament. This is going to be maybe a little less obvious, but I think it's super important. Look at what he says. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he identifies his audience to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This language of the 12 tribes is very interesting and important language because it is ancient language that stretches all the way back to the children of Israel in the Old Testament during the times of the patriarchs and the wilderness wanderings. And he is using that language and applying that title to the New Testament church. So do you see that by using Old Testament language and an Old Testament title for God's people and applying that in a New Testament context, that he is doing something extremely significant. He is drawing a line of continuity between God's people of old and God's people of now. 
And it's very important that we see and understand this. Why? Because what it means to us is that if if that's true, that all that has happened to us, to God's people, to these Jewish Christians who suffer in poverty and dispersion, that all that has happened to them from the beginning and from times of old until today is a part of God's singular unfolding plan of redemptive history. We're given to understand that the church then, the New Testament church, that it is not a separate people from the Old Testament people of God, that it is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament people in Israel. They are not a separate people. And so that all that is happening to them from that time, weaving forward to this time, is a part of the singular unfolding plan of God, which means that it has all happened according to plan A. It's, it's not that something happened that God had to respond to and, and that there's now some great parenthesis and we are that parenthesis, that there's some separation. No, but that it's all unfolded exactly as God intended it to, that we are God's people. We are the fulfillment of his Old Testament people, Israel. Another thing this means, if we are the 12 tribes and he uses that language, that allusion as a designation and as a title for the Christians in his day and consequently for us today, it means that we must then understand that we are connected to the Old Testament. That it is our story. So we read it and we study it. It's not something that doesn't apply to us. It's not something that's not life-giving for us. It's not something that was for those people. We are those people. We are the 12 tribes. We are the fulfillment of God's unfolding redemptive plan for them, which is for us. And so we love and study our Old Testaments. Ligon Duncan, who was a professor of mine, was a pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, who's now the chancellor and guy that runs RTS, one of the largest seminaries in the world. Listen to what he said about this reality. He said, James is very addressed to the Christians as the 12 tribes reminds us that that book, talking about the Old Testament, that that history and that that era, that it is ours, that it's our story. Is that the way we look at our Old Testaments? Do we understand this continuity? Do we understand this this connectedness that we have with them, that we are the fulfillment, that there's not two separate eras, that there's not two separate peoples? That God's people are one from beginning to end. And it also means that that means his salvation. (coughs) Excuse me. That there has only ever been one way. Do Do you see that? Because if there are separate peoples in separate times and separate plans then there can be separate ways to be saved. But because that's not the way God operates, that this line of continuity James is using is expressing to them that they are the fulfillment of God's people. There is this line of connectedness and continuity that God's people are one, that that is your story. It also means that that salvation is the same, that God's plan for redemptive history, for redeeming sinners has always been one way, and that is by grace. 
Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church and the ways they are saved are not different. They are not two different peoples. They do not have two different paths to salvation. They are God's people. They are set apart for his glory. They are saved only by his grace. And their history, their story, our story is the beautiful unfolding plan of God's redemptive love for us. It's all one. So he embraces the Old Testament. Friends, there's no greater encouragement to Christian obedience than to look back and see what God's people, how they have fallen. And to see how God commanded and directed them. Fourthly and finally, after he models for them, okay, his subjection to Jesus, his humility to God, a servant of Jesus. Then he holds Jesus up as God and embraces and exalts the deity of Jesus. Then he, he, he embraces his Old Testament and shows his love for it and his understanding of the continuity between the New Testament church and the Old Testament people of God. After he models for them what it looks like to live as a to, to be a faithful Christian, he's then going to begin to encourage their faithfulness in light of the difficulty and in light of the trying circumstances. Because think about who he's writing to. One of the main themes of the rest of this book is found in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you see? He's fixing to go on a diatribe. He is fixing to unload these commands and these responsibilities for these people. But before he does that, he's going to encourage them with the way that he lives. But he's also going to encourage them with their own identity. Look at the last thing. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad in the dispersion. This language of the dispersion is so important. As he is writing to this suffering people, it is unclear exactly what literal dispersion he's talking about. I think I've alluded to that already. I told you we were going to come back to that. But friends, James is not speaking here only literally. He is speaking metaphorically. He is speaking spiritually. Why? Because he is reminding them that not only are you God's Old Testament people, the fulfillment of that, you are the 12 tribes. Just like the Babylonians and the Assyrians dispersed them and God allowed their persecution and God allowed them to be dispersed afar, so too now you, the New Testament church, God's chosen and holy people, so too in his providence have you been called to share in his sufferings. You have been dispersed abroad. You have been sent afar. But as God did not forget about his People in the Old Testament see these illusions, neither will he forget his people today. That though you are dispersed, you are still God's. You are still his people. And that persecution and that dispersion is not the end. And so he is encouraging them not to live a certain way so that they can be something specific. He is living them to understand who they are because it is who we are that leads to a certain way of life. Do you see what he calls them the dispersion because he is begging and pleading with them to fight against the temptation to look at their current circumstances and to feel like God has forgotten them. He is calling them to remember God's sure and faithful promises that I am yours and you are mine. And even though the world around is dark and decaying and dying, you are not forgotten. You are holy and chosen and loved. You are set apart for salvation and for glory. Friends, that's the way to begin a sermon on encouraging Christian living. 
That's the way to get persecuted people to live by the constraints and the commands of the scriptures to tell them you're God's. And he's not forgotten you. And friends, as with his Old Testament people, Israel, he will come back to get you. Yes, you're persecuted and poor, he's telling them. Yes, you're broken and frail. Yes, you are dispersed abroad. But you are still God's. He will not leave you scattered. He will go far, as the Old Testament tells us, to get you. His plan will culminate in your redemption. And you will finally, one day, be delivered. So, he's going to now continue. So press on. Press on in faith and in obedience. Fight the fight. Run the race. Joyfully obey your Savior who loves you. Do you see? Do you see? Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Thank you for the testimony of James as he modeled a Christian life, his humility, his humility before you, his understanding of who you are and how that applies to who he is. And then his love for the Old Testament, his understanding of the unity of the church and of uh, the plan of salvation. God, thank you that we're yours. And that like these Christians who were suffering, we, we may be suffering greatly. And we may in your providence be trotting a dark valley. But, but God, help us to, to hear James this morning. Before he begins to give us all of these commands, before he begins to step on our toes and call us to repentance, God, help us to see that the driving force is not, it's not penalty. We need to remember who we are and we're yours. For you have made us so at a great price to yourself. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And Father, I pray that that reality would help us to walk worthy of our calling. Lord, as we continue with this study, I pray that you would help us to hear from you, to to be moldable clay in your hands, that we would be ready and willing to repent, to change and that your spirit would make us able to do that, that the gospel would go forth, that we would live lives that give testimony to the gospel that we preach. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.